You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because we're masochists. I'm Anna Smith-Spark. I'm Marshall Ryan Moreska. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris, and this is episode 114, the St. Crispin's Day special. Yes, the only podcast bringing you St. Christmas Day special. I put this on our docket as a kind of joke, like (laughs) in April, I think, (laughs) when I was just going doing the calendar and being like, oh, that was going to come out on St. Crispin's Day. And I'm pretty sure there's a limited number of people in the world who look at a date and immediately go, aha. (laughs) But we had that on our docket. And then Anna reached out and said, <laughs> "said I would love to be with the podcast. And I'm like, I know exactly which one. <laughs> it's the perfect fit. <laughs> yes, and Anna, welcome back. It's lovely to have you again. I think the last time that we were all chatting was like deep in, deep in the pandemic times. And it's, it's very nice to see you again now. And we're having <laughs> oh, a well. time, I hope, for everyone. <laughs> Sort of. You may have gathered that Britain is sort of, yeah, completely yeah. falling apart. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Aside yes. from that, aside detail, from that yes, no, it is. It is personally much happier. I mean, just general Armageddon <laughs> instead of acute Armageddon. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> well, it's lovely to have you on again. And for any of our listeners who did not um, catch you the first time around, would you mind giving us a quick introduction of you and what you do? Yes, so my name is Anna Smith-Spark. I'm the author of a series of books, the Empires of Dust trilogy, The Court of Broken Knives, The Tower of Living and Dying and the House of Sacrifice, which are big, grim, dark, epic fantasy, multi-points of view, very, very military, and sort of I was very, very excited about the St. Crispin's Day because, yeah, they're big, sort of big total war novels. And then more recently, I have out uh, Woman of the Sword, which is a very personal novel to me. It was written during lockdown. It's an incredibly personal novel about a woman, a mother, who is also a frontline soldier in a huge army in a, in in the same world as Empires of Dust, but you don't have to read Empires of Dust at all. It's not a sequel. It's a totally separate thing. But yeah, so she's just a frontline soldier. She's not got any powers. It's it's not it's my least fantastical book. She has no magical powers. It's not about great people and magic and great power. It's about a very, very normal person like myself trying to survive in that kind of world and trying to be fulfilled in it. So yeah, it's kind of intensely personal to me. It's quite it's based a bit on uh, Mother Breck's Mother Courage. So, and again, that kind of theme of military leadership and the kind of charismatic military leader, she's a soldier in an army that's been sort of fighting for a long time, is quite the fore in that. And then just recently, just last month, uh, my latest book came out called A Sword of Bronze and Ashes, which is the first book in a new series, The Remaking of This World Ruined, which is described as folk horror, high fantasy, with some grimdarky battles in it. But yeah, that's about, again, that's, 
that's sort of told from one person's point of view, again, about a woman, a mother, but someone who sort of has secrets in her past that she doesn't, that she's kind of, like anyone who has children who's not quite uncomfortable about sort of, you know, the, the gap, the yawning gap between her life before she had children and the life she, oh, now she has children and that sense of strangeness of, and when your children are growing up and, yeah, want to sort of then becoming more aware of you as a person. And that's quite, actually quite based on things like Alan Garner's The Weird Stone of Brissing Garment. It's a, it's actually that kind of quite traditional children's fancy novel about children fleeing from something dangerous, but told from the point of view of the adult who's protecting them, but who also kind of wants to keep things secret from them. So that's much less military and much more, it's, that's very fantastical and high fantasy. There's lots of sort of folk horror and things in it. Wonderful. Can I just say how much I love how the fantasy genre has evolved in the past 15, 20 years that we've gone from like, well, this one is Lord of the Rings with the serial numbers filed off, but this one <laughs> is Lord of the Rings with the serial numbers filed off. <laughs> that we've gotten to the point where it's like, I, I've written a fantasy book that is inspired by Mother Courage by Berthold Brecht. And like, just my heart just grew three sizes <laughs> from just hearing that phrase. <laughs> I did actually describe so I described a sort of bronze and ashes as kind of um the fellowship the fellowship of the ring if Aragorn was Beyonce and Frodo was Ivy Blue. <laughs> love it. Love it. Again, I love it. Love it. Love it so much. <laughs> well, and I, and I love too how your your books and take different perspectives and you know to to take the perspective not just of the you know, big leaders, but also to have a book about the frontline person. And I feel like there's so much room for that and so much room to explore. In doing that, like, was there anything interesting or fun or unique that you got to focus on the world building on in focusing more on an ordinary person instead of? Uh, I guess not so much focusing more on an ordinary person, but right, well, actually, yeah, no, writing about someone who, whose major concerns are both, so in both The Woman of the Sword and The Sword of Bronze and Ashes, obviously the major concern, someone with children, the major concern is their children. And also someone who is much, both characters, sort of, the, my very latest book, Sword of Bronze and Ashes, is about someone who, in fact, genuinely what they really value in life is their life with their, their partner, their children, their domestic life around them. They've kind of gone beyond the big being the lone hero. They want to be settled and living a kind of boring, peaceful, contented, good life. So what was lovely in the world building there was taking kind of life-affirming sense the way of describing the landscape and things and the people in the landscape. So um, in Empires of Dust, there's lots of stuff about... Um, death obviously and people sort of there's lots of stuff about I took quite heavily the stuff in Norse mythology about the idea of the the um the dwarves being maggots who breed in the flesh of Ymir the, Ymir, the giant who's killed so the world is made in Norse mythology by the a giant being killed and so the 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 earth is his bones and his flesh and then there's this the dwarves are the maggots that breed in his flesh and empires of dust is very kind of nihilistic and pessimistic so I sort of took from that what well, the people are like people are just the maggots that breed in earth fresh and they're destructive and they're destroying the world and again that sense of the world as kind of mountains as bones and rocks as bones and everything and that sense of kind of the world as this sort of threatening hostile dead place rotting place that lots of talk about bones lots of talks about people dying and going down into the dust 
and the earth is sort of dry and dusty and sort of this, which is a line in Homer uses it a lot, that when people in the Iliad die, they they die and their teeth meet the dust and they go, it's where we get, this Homer's actually where we get the term bite the dust from in terms of dying. So that sense of um, sort of dying and there's dust in your mouth. So then when I was writing A Sword of Bronze and Ashes, which is set in a landscape that's very closely based on one of my favourite landscapes, which is a place in Derby, a particular valley in Derbyshire, it, which is in the Peak District in Britain with a very beautiful river and sort of beautiful green, lots of green woods and cattle me- meadow, buttercup meadows. It's kind of really bucolic vision of what a lot of people think of when they think of England. So she, the main character thinks about the landscape a lot in terms of, again, she thinks about in terms of the human body, but she thinks about in terms of like the, at one point she sees the hills as like her husband's, body like his kind of you know his slightly flabby hairy legs and the trees as like his sort of hands and his sort of you know his hands that are all gnarled from work because he's a farmer so the, the landscape is the same kind of land it's the same use of the body human body but a body that's alive and a body that's not he's a slightly fat middle-aged man you know he's not is the winter but she you know she's she's married to him she's been with him for a long time she kind of she sees his body as a something that you know, she doesn't find it necessarily sexually attractive anymore, but, you know, it's his body. She's familiar with it. She's It's almost a part of her. And then from that, there's also stuff about death rituals where people bury, bury the skull of someone on the threshold of a house as a blessing. And this notion of kind of the link between sort of so having having the having the people around you who had lived good lives and then died peacefully in your house, still in your house as a kind of, blessing that you know may may we all live a good life and then die a peaceful death when death being a part of natural cycle of life part of the cycle of life that was a huge thing for me in terms of making a world that felt physically more positive and more about yes they die people die but it's a natural part of life and it was a kind of a circle of life and death you know she has children and she's aware that she will die and they will die in a much more positive way in the landscape having that sense of the physical, the physicalness of the human body and life and death in a much more positive way, which was a really strong contrast with the way I'd built the landscape and attitudes to death in Empires of Dust, where and again, anyone with a sword, they burn, the soldiers' bodies are burned on huge pyres, and then you forget there's stuff in the sword about we burn the dead, and then the dead are gone, and we forget them. And you just, you know, because you, you can't keep remembering all the soldiers in your army who, who've died because there are just too many of them. And you almost go mad as a soldier remembering all the all your comrades who died, so you burn them and move on. But this sense, new sense of yeah, you know, life and death being inscribed in a landscape and being a kind of way of, way of writing something slightly more healing. And I loved writing that. I found it really it was it, it wasn't kind of really consciously created. I was thinking about I it just sort of came out in the writing, but it was a really healing thing for me, that way of building the world, that that sense of the world. I love that, that it's, you know, you build the world and the the thematic resonance of the story like embodies itself in the landscape itself. And I think there's so much to be done with that and said with that. It's lovely. Also, I really like the idea of burying someone's skull outside your doorstep. That's, <laughs> I love <laughs> It that. was done. Like, the... grand, grandma's still with us. In fact, she's right. I like it. Well, it was <laughs> done. It was so, I mean, so, yeah, so sort of, I mean, the big thing that inspires my world building is history and archaeology. 
and I read a huge amount of history and archaeology. And yeah, no, it's actually the kind of burying the dead somewhere far away where you kind of, you might go, okay, you might obviously go and put flowers on the grave sometimes or something, but their kind of distance and away is really actually quite unusual. Kind of, um, it's actually, it's interesting because if you read a lot of books about very early, the sort of evolu- first evolution of early humans and Neanderthals and things, one of the big arguments is, well, did if you can find evidence that Neanderthal buried their dead and mourned their dead in the way we do, so buried them in a hole with grave goods potentially, then that would suggest they had the same level of sentience as Homo sapiens. But the fact you can't find any evidence suggests kind of maybe suggests that they were hands. But there's actually something anthropologists are pointing out that's complete rubbish because most cultures don't. Yeah, there's the all dead. kinds of different ways of and actually, if you're, the dead in, yeah, in ours. Yes. So, like, yeah. Right. It's very, yes. <laughs> it's very, bi- very biased this. to assume there'd be one way of doing yes. it. And that's the way we're going to measure you get this it. Like... Kind of amazing stuff. Um, flute. People seem to have been making flutes out of human bones. And again, you think your first response is like, oh, my God. But then you think about no, that's playing really music. Cool. You know, someone you love. And you play a beautiful. And it's like you your play, breath and their feast, bones, and like, oh, that's really cool. Oh yeah, and it, and it's like all those old like, it's like all those old like delightful ballads where it's like the one sister dies and then like the other like they, they, she gets pushed in the stream and then someone finds her body and makes an instrument out of it. There's like a billion of these variations of these. And I'm like, oh, probably because people actually did that. Yes. That's probably why we have all these songs <laughs> about like making a harp from, you know, someone's breastbone and harp strings from her hair or a fiddle or whatever it is in the song. It's probably because people actually did this at some point. Because it's, yeah, it's just and beautiful. It's, carried on. it's a really beautiful thing. That, that, yeah, no, it does feel like kind of, and that sort of, I mean, again, I sort of, I let my children, there's a graveyard near my house and I do let the children play on the grave sometimes and people are a bit like, oh, but it's like, well, if I, you know, <laughs> Yeah, what could be nicer than having some children running around laughing and seeing on you know or seeing on your grave and that you know that that notion that yeah the dead being part of the part of the fam part of your life still part still part of the community and that remembering them in a good way is yeah that's something that seems is very very common in a lot of history and archaeology and anthropology and is something that I kind of so there's stuff in the book about blurring the lines between life and death in a really sinister way but then the notion of it also this kind of yeah, again, healingness, which again, yeah, given what we've all just come out of and kind of <laughs> pandemic and things that sort of, yeah, being open, sort of writing quite openly about it. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. I, I'm going to be so interested to see the patterns of things written during like those 2020 through like probably now and a few years from yeah. now, like the, the, the themes. We're still processing it. It's going to be... Who we became yeah. as people, like we had to do a lot of thinking and processing, and you know, probably growing and healing for a lot of us too. So, I wonder honestly, like a few generations from now, how many things are going to come from just like so many of us is like, well, that's grandma. She grew up in the depression. It's going <laughs> to be that's grandma. She grew up in the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> grandma always has. 12 packages of toilet paper <laughs> <because> <laughs> she lived through that time there's always a mask in instead of like the butterscotch candy it's, it's a little n95 just always grandma's purse yep I was there, just in case so we want to talk about about things related to our saint crispin's day special but even though I imagine that our listeners have a higher percentage it's of people true. who know what that is um, <laughs> than, than the average 
than the average bear. Cass, would you would you mind, since this was your brainchild, explaining for our kind listeners what is of Saint course. Crispin's Day? Saint Crispin's Day is October the twenty fifth, <laughs> and it's a very minor saint's day in the uh, you know Catholic liturgy. It's actually there's two dudes, Crispin and Crispon- Crispianus, I think. They were cobblers. They got martyred, and they got a saint's day. None of us would know anything about this or have any reason to care if not for Shakespeare. <laughs> because as it happens, the um, Battle of Agincourt, which was Henry V in his attempt to conquer France, um, took place on October the 25th. And Shakespeare gives Henry V in his play, Henry V, a really, really great speech um, about this, about it, this battle that they're about to have on St. Crispin's Day. And this fascinates me because, for one thing, Henry V is a really interesting play that you can read as very, very, like, jingoistic, patriotic almost, or it's really, really subversive. And, like, just depending on some choices that you can make in, in the playing of it, you can tilt that balance one way or the other. But the speech itself is one of the most finely crafted pieces of rhetoric you're ever going to find. Um, it's... And I can prove this empirically. I won't right now, but I can um, and have <laughs> the way it is arranged. There, there, there will I be can, charts. I can add some, um, <laughs> some some handouts in the show notes. Um, I have, in fact, that taught this fantastic. lecture many times. The way it's arranged, the way the speech is arranged is absolutely designed to motivate you, to play upon your emotions in a very particular way. And that's why the speech has become so famous. This is the speech from which we get the famous um, We Few, We Happy Few, We Band of Brothers. It's often also known as the Band of Brothers speech. Um, it's it's very, very famous. And it's the only reason that anyone now remembers what this day is. And even so, you have to be a particular kind of person. But it just amuses me. And so anytime I see the date, I'm like, ah, we should do something about that. I once declaimed the speech on a park bench at... Was it midnight? It was after a show. It was when I was in grad school because someone bet me two drinks that I wouldn't. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I don't even have drinks. I'll do this drinks. for free. But if you're going to buy me drinks, I'll absolutely go do it right now. But can you do it right now? I can. I won't. Good. Good. It's running through my head. It's such an interesting look at the power of language and what language can do and how language works on you. Because in the speech, the king is convincing um, his his nobles, honestly, that they need to stick with this fight and, and, and stay in it, that it's going to be worth it. This is a big ask because their army is hugely outnumbered. Their reasons for being in this fight are not awesome to begin with, which is a whole other <laughs> historical issue. And he's trying to convince them of this. And he basically does it by saying, hey, it's a great thing that there are so few of us because the fewer men, the greater share of honor. And the whole thing is this theme about like how great it is that when we survive this day, we're going to get to talk about how awesome it was that we overcame these tremendous odds. And it's like, if you if you think about it for too long, it's like, wait a minute, dude, what are you trying to do to us here? <laughs> what, what exactly is going on? But when you're listening to it, you're not doing that calculation. And I have seen audiences uh, watching this speech who would have followed my actor friend into battle because of how well he was delivering the speech. It moves you. And I, I think that's really cool. I think it's, I think it's a, a neat and dangerous thing that language can do. <laughs> so my first launch off question for y'all is what are other like rousing speeches that you think of that you think are just 
exemplars of the genre, if you will. I mean, to go back to Shakespeare, I mean, you have to love uh, Anthony's funeral speech from from Julius Caesar along those lines of like, look, I'm not here to cause any trouble. I'm just going to say exactly what these guys want me to say, because these guys are great. I mean, it's not like Caesar didn't do this, this, this and this, but like, no, these guys don't do what's wrong. And these guys, they're great aren't they? I mean, it's not like Caesar wasn't just fucking amazing and you all loved him and he did so many great things for you and they killed him. But these guys, no, they're great, aren't they? It's just beautiful. I love it so much. I mean, I when I did that play, I was one of the four like citizens who were like reacting to the speech. And you don't even have to act because the guy who's playing Anthony is just giving you everything you need to react honestly of like, wait a second. Caesar was awesome and these guys who killed him are terrible. We have to we have to shred them. We must destroy them. A couple of my favorites do come from Lord of the Rings, um, both from Return of the King and it's the fourth Aerolingas when King Theoden is doing a very similar thing with his writers. Being like, there's not that many of us, and there's a lot of them. Except in his case, he's not saying the, the fewer men, the greater share of honor, because we'll live and we'll get to enjoy that honor. He's saying, no, we're all going to die and it's going to be great. <laughs> and that's a particular <laughs> motivational method dependent upon his culture. <laughs> that's a whole choice. Yes, that one was very culturally dependent, yeah. I feel. That would not that would not work for, for many subgroups today. Just ride in yelling death. Today is a good day to die. Yes. Yeah, because I was going to say that one because I, I cannot watch. I, I cry every time I watch it, and I don't. I cry with a kind of joy because it is. There is something about it that is sublimely beautiful, and I mean, obviously, Tolkien's words in the book, but the way it's filmed, when the film version, the way it's filmed, the whole way it's staged, it is. There is something so sublimely beautiful and powerful about that scene and the way it's done, and you do. It is incredibly seductive. You really are. That yes, to die here would be an amazing thing. You know, you really are brought into it. And I mean, of course, you know, it's it actually links into kind of the stuff I've been writing in my in the new my newest books, because that notion of something that it is worth dying for and it's worth killing for, actually is something I've been thinking about more and more in the last couple of years. I mean, I kind of I started writing The Court of Broken Knives, which is incredibly cynical about the notion of the leader. So in Empires of Dust, Marith is the great leader. He makes a lot of routing speeches. He's heavily, he's heavily modeled on Alexander. He makes a great deal of very routing speeches, encouraging people to fight for him and die for him. And that was written with a very kind of cynical, the sense of a leader encouraging you to fight and to die is just terrifying. And you should always doubt and nothing is worth dying and killing for. And then the last couple of years, things have just escalated to the point where that sense of actually there probably is are things worth dying for and actually there probably are things worth killing for, possibly even, seems to me more valid I think than it did as a blissful summer child of the 1990s with that yeah. and 2000s with that vague <laughs> sense of okay things are a bit crap but you know things things might be getting better <laughs> and we might be building a slightly more equal and tolerant society and yes we are sexist racist and homophobic but we're possibly less every year than we were before and it looks like yeah and now that kind of speech the audience makes where he knows you know he knows it's futile he's pretty certain they're all going to die and he's pretty certain in fact Mordor are going to win and he's pretty certain the world is just going to be washed away. 
in blood and in fire and it's all going to just but it's worth making that stand and it would be better to die making that stand and to know you tried than to not but and that for me that becomes a more and more kind of powerful thing or something perhaps one should aspire to that I didn't used to feel yeah that that in some cosmic yeah, sense it matters yeah. that you that you fought yes even yes, if there's it, no one left to remember yes, it but it, it still affects the fabric of the yes. universe in some way yes 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 that kind of atheist I'm an atheist but at the same time that sense of you know it matters that God's you know it matters before God it matters yeah in some in some cosmic way it matters that I failed but I tried yeah. and yeah and that which is what his speech really is about and so yeah I find that a yeah. profoundly moving important speech far more than Aragorn's big men of the west mm-hmm. speech at the end for the black mm-hmm. gate which is so much more upbeat and traditionally kind of and yeah that I still find slightly problematic as a kind of yeah I mean you can see that as a kind of slight you can of course read that as the kind of militaristic frightening <laughs> quasi-fascist rousing speech in the same way you can read the Christmas Christmas Day speech but the Odin speech is something else Mm -hmm. it is something kind of yeah I mean I think it's if you're going to appeal to those kinds of you know virtues or truths or however you call them like people have to truly believe them and I think that it's it's something that you know I think you brought up the word you know sort of cynical Anna and, and the like comfort that we sort of grew up in it's perhaps a more modern viewpoint to not believe in truths that are greater than life and death. You know, that this is sort of a unique position that we, you know, live in, in in our day and age, that that isn't something that we would think of as being just as valuable as, as life and death, that dying for this thing that I believe in, you know, I believe in these, these virtues or truths or whatever they are layered into, you know, your, your ethos and your, your belief set in your culture then as it expresses that you know that wh- whatever it is if there's the, the the joke in literature that like french literature is all like i would die for love <laughs> and you know british literature is i would die for country and and american literature is like i'll die for freedom and Russian literature is just all die. Um, but <laughs> but the idea of having this thing that like is is greater than I would die for this thing that means more than well, than And death, it makes me think sort of know. Anna with what you were saying earlier is that I wonder if living in a world where you are closer to death as a matter of fact, where where it is a more prominent piece of your life makes you reckon with it in a different way and makes you decide, well, you know, I'm definitely going to die for something at some point anyway. I may as well make it something that I think really matters. Like, does that just sort of change your perspective on what you are willing to die for and or how easy it is to persuade you to die for something? You can cash in your chips now or you can cash them in in like five years when the next plague comes around. <laughs> so you take your choice. No one's getting out of this one. So, Well, that, I mean, that, yeah, that whole issue around sort of death in battle versus, yeah, the, what is a good death? Is a good death, yeah, to to follow the leader into the hopeless battle and to die in glory? Or is the good death to stay at home and die as an old age peaceful in your bed? Is such an interesting question that's been, that goes back so far. I mean, right back, you're talking about kind of, it's not really a military speech, but the great speech Achilles makes, it's it's anti, the very anti-military yeah. speech that Achilles makes and then turns his back on in the Iliad, where he sort of talks, says that, you know, he's going to go home and he's going to grow old. 
and that you know he's not gonna he's not gonna be famous he's not gonna be remembered he's not gonna be glorious but he's gonna go and live a really long life and die in his bed and then he, he changes nah, his mind nah. and he does yeah well he <laughs> yeah, does yes. and he does yeah, he goes out doctor's dies and he does go out knowing yeah that he will die but also knowing in that with you know he's got he knows that incredible the rampage he goes on his aristia then he knows will make him legendarily famous and he's a partly dying he's dying because he has nothing left to live for because Patroclus is dead but he's also dying because he knows he will be remembered as the greatest hero and yeah he's just turned his back on this wonderful moving speech he's previously made about the value of going home getting married having children living a really really boring sort of small life and then being forgotten and that's a really really interesting I do love that kind of speech, though, where it's the person basically convinces themselves to the opposite position they started <laughs> in. <laughs> they argue themselves out of it, like, oh, wait a minute. I think it's interesting think. Um, because I, I teach rhetoric and composition to, to college students that um, I think the term rhetoric gets a really bad rap that I often will start, like, I have to start these lessons with them on kind of like, you know, what do you think that this means? And most of their reactions, it just means manipulating your audience. It just means, you know, that that's all that it is. And I mean, is, is that, a, is that fair? Is that a fair assessment of rhetoric or are my freshmen not as wise as they think they are? It's always considered one of the greatest of the arts. You know, it was always considered to be one of the, a really learning, the art of rhetoric was considered to be incredibly important. It's not only up until recently that idea of being kind of, that it's just sort of glibness, that notion of being silver-tongued, being a good learner, you know, the professors of rhetoric up until recently, I was considered to be an incredibly important part of someone's education. Although, of course, that was, of course, of the education of the ruling <laughs> classes who were encouraging yeah. everyone to sign up and go <laughs> charging off to back behind them. So, I mean, one could argue. <laughs> well, they would say that, wouldn't they? They would. Rather necessary that we keep training them to do this. Like any tool, it can be used for good or for evil. The thing I would always tell my students was rhetoric is nothing more and nothing less than structuring your words to achieve a desired effect. So what is that effect? And is that effect a good thing or a bad thing? And I also always told my students that the advantage of knowing rhetoric is being able to hear it, is being able to hear mm -hmm. when you're being manipulated. And the example I always use with them is things like, um, you know, modern advertising. We take in so much media these days, so, so much more media on a daily basis than our ancestors did. And it behooves them to have at least a basic understanding of what strings somebody is pulling on. And the more aware you are of it, the better you're going to hear it, the better you're going to see it when it's happening, and perhaps the more immune you are to the persuasion. Now, I say that, and yet I will still absolutely be moved by something that I know is manipulating me. <laughs> like I'll, I'll hear, I'll be like, I hear what you're doing, and yet... <laughs> I'll, I'll take it. I mean, I feel like it's interesting that rhetoric only works if there's buy-in to begin with. Like it's not, you are not planting ideas in someone's mind. Those ideas existed there and you're articulating them in such a way to play on them. Like, you know, the let's go die for honor speech doesn't work if your audience doesn't believe in honor. It doesn't, you know, the, it, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're playing on, patriotism, love, whatever virtue truth it, it doesn't work unless your audience already believes those things so in some ways rhetoric is it's an amazing articulation of what a culture or a group values to begin with 
Yeah, when you think about, you know, the epic speeches, historical, fictional, whatever, they are always appealing to some kind of common value in their audience. And that means you have to understand your audience. You have to know who they are and what they want and what they care about in order to pluck those strings. There are also lots of examples in Shakespeare of people doing this really badly. There are examples of people failing at it. Richard III gives a speech in his titular play that just utterly lands like a lead balloon. It does not go over well at all. And he he has to sort of keep cajoling his people to be like, no, really, we're going to we're going to fight. We're going to do this. But he's doing it so poorly. Or you'll see people take multiple tactics. In Julius Caesar, Cassius, when he's first trying to convince Brutus to join the conspiracy, actually has to use three different rhetorical strategies before he finds one that works. He's not pulling the right strings at first, but he's smart enough to realize it because he's not getting what he wants out of Brutus. And so he sort of switches tactics until he gets the buy-in that he needs. And then he really dives in um, and, and gets Brutus wrapped into the whole thing. Going, yeah, and rhetoric is also, yes, because it's also structuring the language in such a way that it is in some way pleasing. It is, you know, rhetoric is more than just, rhetoric isn't just telling someone something. It's using language in a way that creates magic. It is it is creating, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a very interesting book I've been reading about the history of, it's called, described itself as, as the Arabs, but it's in fact, of course, the history of Arabic language. Because that, and it talks about the kind of, a key feature of Arabic rhetoric being that if when something is spoken in a particular poetic cadence, it has if it is beautiful, it must be true. Because if it is said in a way that is particularly beautiful and poetic and striking, the fact that that language has that beauty means that what has been conveyed must be true. So that kind of notion of beautiful, high-flown poetic language having a magic in it that kind of mundane normal day, daily speech doesn't and that therefore poets are speaking truth because they are speaking beauty and there is an strong element of that in rhetoric that that kind of you know that i mean obviously people have done a lot of analysis on what works the kind of the famous all the kind of famous you know Tony uh, Tony Blair, British Prime Minister, had this same thing: education, education, education. People point out, you know, the famous the, the repetition of the three, or the kind of famous "ask not what you can do for your country, ask what what your country could do for you," with the kind of the flipping, and all of these different rhetorical techniques, and they're all ways of making your speech beautiful and special, and using they are this slightly different way of speaking, which does create that magic that somehow has a kind of a power in it through the through the magic and beauty of the language. So it's not just telling it's not just sort of telling people something that they already know. It's telling them in a way, it's finding a way of saying something that gives it some kind of power. The way you phrased that early on made me imagine some sort of like fae culture where it's literally true. Where in order to create the truth around you, to create the world around you, you have to speak it beautifully. And if you don't do it quite well enough, then it's all going to fall apart. But be fun competitions to be like. <laughs> who can make the prettiest thing by saying the prettiest words. And in some ways it is, right? I mean, we do have that element of of competing for making things true by saying things the prettiest that is sort of enacted by the way that we use rhetoric and and spoken and written word. Well, it sort of gets into your, your next question, Rowena, which is about the connection between rhetoric and charisma. But it's when we think of somebody who is charming, we often think of the way 
they speak and the way that the way they speak makes you feel. And even that has the magic embedded in the term, right? To charm someone is an act of magic. The word charisma has this root too. Like these things are so tightly interwoven and I don't think that we always recognize that on a conscious level, but there is something very deep in in embedded in what we think is, you know, attractive in people, persuasive in people that is connected to how well they use language. And I think it is sort of interesting that in in literature and film and and most other like modes in which we experience like viewing the story of leadership, um, the leaders are always very well spoken and very charismatic and and use rhetoric to great effect. And I was thinking about that. I was like, is that is that always like true in real life? Like you look at some of the great leaders in the past, and I'm like, you know, you actually you read George Washington's writing. That man was not a great rhetorician. He was boring, actually. I'm pretty sure that he was he was a detail oriented nerd, and and most of his his speeches and his writings are very matter of fact. You know what? I'm sure he was punctual. I'm sure he was a punctual person. We'll give him that. But like the the charisma that he had didn't. I don't know that it came from. In his case, how he spoke or how he he used rhetoric. But in literature, we combine these really often because we we that's how we express that. That's how we show that form of leadership. The ability to deliver words is such a critical factor in this that, you know, it can seem incredibly boring on page, but when the right person is delivering it, suddenly you're in trance. Whereas it can be really <laughs> pretty on the page but if somebody just drones through it it's not going to have that same rhetorical effect i mean we use the joke of like i would watch this person read the phone book but that's exactly that the the way that they say something matters so much i mean george washington might have been incredibly charming in person i'm I'm gonna stand by he was really tall and that can also be a substitute sometimes yes for Yes. He, <laughs> he had height. He might have he might have also had that like deep resonant bass voice that just makes you go like, ooh. I don't know what he's saying, but it sounds melodic. <laughs> you know, or perhaps there are, are forms of leadership that, that do not have this and and they're great and they do their thing. Like we don't need the quartermaster to give rousing speeches. We just need him to keep good tallies on things. That would be so much fun to have a character who was though, like a quartermaster who like, just as he's taking his stock, just sort of subconsciously starts doing it. Niambic pentameter. That'd be really funny. (laughs) Yeah, that would be. And and yes, poor, poor Stan, the quartermaster, his talents wasted upon casks (laughs) of oil and bags of flour. And so it raises the question, like, so who do you who do you want to follow? Like, what makes what makes the either us projecting ourselves into these situations or characters that we make up um, makes them want to follow a leader? Well, we actually we've had a really interesting. Well, this is making me think of the political situation we've had over here in Britain. Uh, sort of, I mean, less so now because there was a there was a really interesting point where. Boris Johnson was still Prime Minister of Britain and he was this kind of weirdly charismatic, he's a very weirdly charismatic person because he is repellent and yet he has, he does appear to have this kind <laughs> we, of incredible... We have one of those too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand it, but we got one. Can't, can't explain it, but it seems like... But he, and, you know, and he sort of 
it was quite he has this quite extraordinary charisma where he Johnson where he had and he has this incredibly kind of overblown in fact deliberately bumbling but also throwing in a lot of Latin and classical allusions and things to sort of mark his how erudite he is while also a good sort of speaking so he, he used lots of terms like inverted pyramid of piffle which kind of is this sort of incredibly childish but also kind of showing that he is you know he can play with like he's playing with language he's not he's using all these kind of insane words to create this kind of sense of himself as you know incredibly erudite he swallowed a thesaurus you know sort of while also coming across as this a bumbling idiot and it was an incredibly it was incredibly sort of creative it's very very creative persona but then he was you know obviously he was actually incredibly popular he did win a huge amount of support in the 2019 election as the people who've never voted conservative in their lives before were voting for him for him personally and then people were absolutely disgusted with him and then we have Keir Starmer as the opposition who is incredibly boring he has an incredibly boring and in fact slightly odd voice He's not got a voice you'd want to listen to particularly. And he's in, he's he's just a very kind of boring, technocratic person. But it was that sense of a lot of people kind of saying, you know, boring is wonderful. You know, we've seen this person who people would, clearly would, you know, if you, a couple of hundred years ago, you'd stuck him on a horse shouting huzzah for the British Empire. Clearly, would people clearly would have followed him to do the most hideous things and also to end up dying in the most hideous ways. And then people were sort of looking at him and then looking at Starmer and saying, like, but boring is wonderful. You know, we want boring. We want this boring guy who's, we want the quartermaster because the quartermaster can count out the correct numbers of, you know, can dish out the food correctly. And, you know, we can, things will be all right under the quartermaster. We won't, you know, that sort of. We feel safe. We feel protected. Yes. It felt like kind of, you know, we don't want rhetoric. We want someone saying a really boring, short, boring, inelegant, ugly sentence that actually means something is done, <laughs> rather than some kind of absurd piles of language that sounds immensely good on television but doesn't get anything. And that was, that was a really kind of interesting moment. And now we're just kind of, I don't know where we are, just don't even talk about it. We, 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 don't, we don't really know what we're doing over here. <laughs> but it is it's an interesting just... thing that we do, like in, in real life and in fiction, is the conflation of looking and sounding good with actual governing ability and they are not necessarily the same i would love to see some like more fantasy stories that actually explored that where you know the person up there giving the speeches is really good at doing that but maybe like knows that they're not the right person to come up with a sound financial policy for the nation so like a little more like <laughs> or, division, or they don't know no I, <laughs> division of labor more like I was like we, we've actually got three yes. rulers and it's yes. because we need someone to be the motivating factor to go out there and stir the people up. But then we need somebody whose brain is a little more detail oriented, who can be thinking about, you know, all these things. And we need somebody who can keep their eye on the judicial scene, you know, whatever. But like, it'd be, it'd be fun to see that explored yeah. more in fiction. Or, or if, if you want a jumping off point for a, a, a plot tangle, the person does not know that they're not good at all these things because they get so much positive <laughs> feedback from speaking well and being charismatic <laughs> that they think they can do all this stuff. And then this country just kind of starts to fall apart. It strikes me, too, that the way in which we encounter a leader matters in terms of how we assess, you know, their charisma, that someone who we only encounter in the written word, we're going to think that a different person is charismatic than if we're hearing them say, you know, audio, we mostly encounter them via audio speeches or hearing 
their voice, which is different from if we mostly, you know, encounter them in video and seeing them, you know, the whole, the whole person. Like there's kind of the, the question of would FDR have been elected in the age of television with the ableism that existed in the 1930s if everyone had known that he was in a wheelchair? Yeah. And that that, you know, would have affected how people saw him as a charismatic leader. But instead, you're only hearing him on the radio. And he's a very he is a very charismatic speaker. So that's how people encountered him and how they made those assessments. It's interesting, like, the world that you build in some way builds a box in which you define what charisma is. There was the thing in the 1960 election when there was the debate between Kennedy and Nixon. And... Nixon apparently on stage was just in like total flop sweat. So, but was articulate. So the people who listened on the radio to the debate said Nixon clearly won, but the people who watched said that Kennedy won because Kennedy looked cool and collected while Nixon looked a mess, even though Kennedy looked like Kennedy. Kennedy looked like Kennedy, (laughs) which, you know, I mean, that right there gives that, that dichotomy of what is exactly the correct combination of of charisma for quote-unquote leadership, whether or not that makes one actually qualified to lead. Actually, there's an interesting kind of <laughs> reversal of that. In um, it's, not, it's not leadership per se, but in uh, when Hilary Mantel is writing about Anne Boleyn, because she's trying to, in, so in, the, in um, Wolf Hall, she's obviously trying to write about this woman who Henry VIII is prepared to throw over the whole of the Church of Rome for her sake. And most of the sort of most of the court around him also seems to be quite besotted with her. So she's trying to somehow write a woman who is in some way a fairly realistic woman, but also somehow has this has something about her that means that people so the, the King of France was besotted with Anne Boleyn for a while as well. There's this you know, there's something about her. Which is very hard to get across writing about a character. So what she does is have Cromwell as the one person who can't see it. But she's constantly being asked, well, can you not see it in her? And he's saying, no, I can't. I just see a slightly skinny woman with nice hair. And they're all saying, but, you know, can't you see it? And say, no. And then, of course, when that is then translates onto television, you're kind of seeing her as Cromwell sees her, and it's almost like you're looking and saying, I can't see it, no. Because it's, it's very difficult to have that, but casting someone to have that, what is it about this person that gives them that charisma is actually very, it's very, very difficult. If you're always in that, well, I can't see it. Why on earth are they doing that? It's so incredibly hard to capture in someone who, who is acting it or hasn't. It's incredible. You can't fake it. So therefore trying to create it, capture it in, in, in fiction, isn't, in a fictional portrayal of that person is incredibly difficult. And you often are reduced to saying, no, I, you can't see it. Everyone else can, you know, everyone else, the, the people on the screen can see it, but we all in the audience know it's a, it's just a glamour because it's so hard to create, to replicate, and fake. It's something uh, that that reminds me of something I thought about um, Lena Headey in as Cersei in Game of Thrones. And Lena Headey is a fantastic actress. This is nothing against her, but the way she was written and directed in the show, I thought didn't do enough of a, a good job of showing what that character was supposed to feel like to most people in her world in the books. Because the books tell you that Cersei is charming, that people love her, that they think she's beautiful and sweet and generous, that most people think that way about her. Most of our point of view characters in the books do not feel that way about her. And I, it felt like the TV show only showed us 
that aspect was only showing us the nasty side of Cersei that you see from the point of view characters. Not, she never had that, that glamour, that charisma, that, you know, Lady Bounty aspect that she is supposed to have to most people in the books. Because otherwise, you'd look at it and go, how did this woman fool people for so long? Like, obviously, she's murdering everyone. Duh. Like, look, <laughs> look at the way she's behaving. <laughs> it's just not plausible at that point. But like, if she if she is generally seen as a beautiful, lovely figure, then it makes more sense that she got away with what she did for, you know, two decades before anyone <laughs> figured out what she was up to. Yeah, no, yeah, because Anne Boleyn is always shown exactly the same way, that sense of you're sort of like, she's clearly this manipulative mm-hmm. evil witch. Henry's obviously just completely, God knows why he's so besotted with her. It's just kind of, and in fact, there was a recent television programme which was reduced, reduced to suggesting that maybe she, maybe had Henry had a kink and he, she was the only person, you know, he, yeah, she was, <laughs> yeah, they were into S&M and obviously, you know, not only people back then were into it. So, you know, obviously, you know, that that's what it is, that, you know, she was in, he was enthralled to her because, you know, she was the one person. She was the only one who would wear the special outfit yes <laughs> because that sense of you know that sense of there was obviously something about her that was just you know for henry was just quite astonishing and that henry and a lot of the people around him must have seen because it's and again because it's very hard to replicate on stage or in a book it's just kind of well you know she just comes across as this always comes across as this really vile evil scheming using her beauty to enrich herself which yeah, it just seems very kind of cheapening. And you always come out of it, well, Henry was a right idiot, wasn't he? Kind of rather than, you know, kind of, this went on for years. She was, she had something. And it's, it's interesting too, because it's always going to be part of a larger, like relational, cultural, subcultural, like moment, right? Like it's like, she's not existing as an individual person by herself. Like she's existing in relationship to all of these people around her and in relationship to the norms of the culture and the time. And I think it's, it's so complex. How does, you know, how, how are, how do you become an Anne Boleyn? How do you become a Cersei? Not by yourself completely, but by like fitting into some niche within that society and kind of playing on it, which kind of leads me to a question of like, how, how do we not necessarily write Anne Boleyns, <laughs> but leaders. How do we write? How do we write leaders? Like, how do we write people that that our characters will follow? I mean, we have to make our characters follow them, but if it seems fake, no one's going to buy it. So, <laughs> a thing that I do a lot with my characters who are leaders and who are trying to inspire is I never. I don't want to say never because then someone will say, "Ah, oh, but in this scene you did." I almost never show the scene where they're giving like the inspiring speech from their point of view. I, I, I'm never inside their head when that's what's happening, even if they are otherwise a point of view character, you know, in other chapters. I always put that in the point of view of an observer, of someone who's watching them and who can watch them and who can also watch the reaction that other people are having to them. Because I feel like that gives me more opportunity to explore that interplay between performer and audience, essentially. Um, to see how it's working and how they adjust and and what kind of effect it's having. And that also then shows you from the observer's perspective, whether they agree with the speaker or not, the awareness of like what strings are being pulled. What is this leader appealing to in people? How honest or dishonest do we think that appeal is? Because just like, there's another thing is that just because you're manipulating someone doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. (laughs) Like, you have to manipulate your children to eat vegetables, right? Like, th- that's occasionally a thing that has to happen. Sometimes I need to manipulate you to make a good choice, because otherwise you're going to make a bad choice. 
<laughs> so it's not always like even the word manipulative. It's not always a bad thing. <laughs> but that might be me being too much of a rhetorician. It's, um, helpful, convincing. It's it's encouragement. It's encouragement to go in the direction that you would have chosen for yourself if only you had really known. It's like we we call it benevolent gaslighting yeah. at work when we're trying to you know like persuade the kids at camp to believe in a particular story. It's just benevolent gaslighting. It's like you'll have more fun if you come along with me on this this way. One thing I think it's interesting for us as writers, if, wh- whether we're writing the the characters who are in leadership or or characters like watching them from outside, is that we have the benefit of being able to have both the external presentation and interiority. So we have that like balance between what is being presented, you know, publicly, and then what are what is either the reaction to it or the individual who is is presenting that leadership charisma facade, whatever it is, like, what do they actually think about it? And I think that that adds this layer and depth to it. Um, you know, do they think that what they are doing is manipulative in a good way, a bad way, or benevolent gaslighting? Or do they truly believe in it so much that they don't see it as in any way? Or are they just phoning it in? Like, is it like, I can deliver the speech yeah. in a passionate way, but my brain is making the grocery list. Like, I don't. I'm kind of hungry and I'm hoping I can have some pie later. So I did kind of all of these things with when I was writing Marith, who's the sort of the huge, the protagonist of Empires of Dust, who is closely modeled on Alexander and the sort of elements of Napoleon in him. Now I've read a huge amount of stuff about about Alexander, about great military leaders. There's elements of Genghis Khan in him, elements of, so that, I've read a huge amount about military leaders. I've read a lot of the kind of speeches that are written for them. I mean, yeah, yeah there's some Christmas Day speeches, actually. Um, it's one of the things that just plays in my head all the time anyway. If sort of if someone gave me a bash over the head, you know, and there's a comedy bash over the heads where you can't remember anything, but you just sort of, the person just sort of comes out with just kind of random sentences about nothing, nothing. They're obviously just stuck in their head. So I'd come up with kind of weird mashup of bits of the Iliad, the Agamemnon, the Wasteland, and the St. Crispin's Day speech. Which kind of, <laughs> I don't know why. But um, yeah, so I've, I mean, I've read a lot, I've studied a lot of those speeches and I've spent a lot of time reading about the sort of charismatic leaders. So when I was writing him, I was kind of, had a lot of fun giving him some really huge, big, big set piece Eve of battle speeches and yeah, and write and then writing about how he felt about it. That there's yeah, sometimes he know he kind of knows he's lying or he knows he's manipulating people. And yeah, he's bored and he needs to give this time to be bored and he needs giving the speech and he he knows that it's just you know it's just absurd. He's giving this speech to these people and then you know they they are probably all going to die tomorrow and it's not going to be glorious. And he's he knows he's lying to them. He knows he really can't be bothered. He's doing autopilot and then I had to give him one scene which was based on Alexander's great failure when Alexander so Alexander gets to right to the far he gets to India so he is really at the absolute limit of the known world for his soldiers he's gone beyond the world they can possibly know into somewhere that's really off the map for them and things are very very different culturally for them they're kind of they're used to the Persian Empire and they get to India and it's culturally it's a totally different world for them. In the climate, it's a totally different world for them. They, they end up in India in the monsoon, which is not something that they're used to. <laughs> and they they mutiny and want to go back. And Alexander makes this great speech, encourage them to go on. And if they go on a little further, they'll see the ocean and then have marched from one end of the world to the other. And he makes this big speech to get them to go on. 
and they still refuse. And after a couple of days, he has to give in and make another big speech saying, you know, he has to make a speech, which is kind of making the best of it and saying they'll set up some big altars here. And this is the end of their campaign and they'll turn back. But essentially, he and then they, this, his soldiers then make this big speech back to him where he talks about undefeated only apart from the undefeated apart from being defeated by himself as in he didn't force them to go on and there's this big there's the, the there's this big kind of everyone has this rhetorical attempt to somehow make it it's all right when obviously he just his speech finally failed so i gave marith that speech but the other way around where they, they the soldiers where he wants to he's disbanding them and they won't disband and that kind of so i gave him these three days of being aware that his He's aware that he has this huge army that is no longer quite under his control and he's making speeches to them and they're heckling him and they're they're not quite rushing the stage to you know to throw him off the stage, but they're they're heading in that direction and how he's and he's trying to get his head around the fact that for one moment his charisma's failing and his rhetoric's failing and it's not working. And then of course they do come round, but that kind of weird sense of writing someone who's very who's used to being the leader in that moment where it fails which kind of well that was an interesting thing to write but i mean it's but then also writing so we're, i was writing more and more from the i was writing particularly in the third book in that series the house of sacrifice there are little bits from the point of view of people around him and then the woman of the sword it's a, it's about people on the front line who are just the very you know the people listening to the speeches and I, again how they receive the speeches and how what it does to them is something that's really interesting me. And so there's a really interesting book I've been reading about Napoleon's march on and then retreat from Moscow. And even right up until the end, apparently if you look at letters and diary entries from people, the survivors of the Grand Army, even right up until the end when they're retreating, and by this point the army has been absolutely destroyed, there's just nothing. People sort of people have who've lost all their fingers and toes to frostbite. They've most of their, you know, there's accounts of units that went marched out as of 200 and there's like 30 of them left. And they're kind of, you know, they're freezing and they're kind of wearing any old thing. They're wearing kind of, and they're eating frozen raw horse meat from the horses that are dying of cold all around them. But still, Napoleon, when Napoleon is, comes to address them, they cheer him and they're still shouting Vive la Emperor and they still believe that he will get them out of this because they just have such absolute absolute confidence in him and just seeing him by that point is enough for them to believe that somehow everything will be all right in the end and they everything will be fine it's not until he finally left the army and rushed off to paris to try and stabilize the situation in fact the whole thing that's the point when it actually completely collapsed because it wasn't until he'd gone that the soldiers almost kind of woke up to their predicament it's quite astonishing when you read about how late they're still kind of but it's all right because Napoleon will save us because he's Napoleon. And that kind of, it's, yeah, it's really quite hot. It's quite astonishing kind of. So I, so, I, so yeah, so I had this bit with, in fairly close succession, we get addressed by two different leaders. So first we're addressed by a man who's kind of in his forties and we see him as the great leader. You know, he's old enough to be kind of a father He's kind of, he's a strong, mature, sensible man. You know, he can make the sensible, mature decisions. He's he's old enough to have adult children. You know, he's kind of, he's a kind of strong, stable, secure choice. And then a couple of 
not long afterwards, were then addressed by a much younger man who's young, a, a boy, someone who's not that later, who's kind of in his early 20s. And suddenly it's like, well, that other guy looks really old. And, you know, he's looked old and stale and we're used to him. This new, you know, the new guy is new and fresh and young and he's got new ideas and he looks kind of, and that the way that people's perceptions of a leader shift, that kind of the way that you go from that kind of, we want someone young, you know, we want someone the way you can that rhetoric presents people, you know, the old man with the knowledge and the wisdom and the experience. And then you can sort out, well, and compared to, you know, that young man, the boy who knows nothing, you know, who's kind of has no experience. Or then you have the kind of, but the young man with all the energy and the dynamism versus the old guy who's just kind of old and doddery and stale and got new ideas. And the way that can be flipped and is so often flipped in political discourse, the way that kind of lead the sort of things like leadership debates when televised debates, the way it just flips almost from flip, things flip so quickly from sort of in the way those two contrasts are played off. So I was writing about that quite sort of a lot, that kind of way that people's loyalties shift so quickly as their perceptions of the people around them are shifted, that the, the leader is shifted by different rhetoric. And it makes me think too, when we're, you know, when we're crafting these things in, in novels, what kind of a forum is there for people to know who their leader is? You know, like if you live in the capital city and you might see him on the balcony giving the speech or whatever, that's a different feeling than if you're someone who lives off in some far off village and may never see your leader in your entire life. Do you still have that faith in them? Is there a way that, you know, their their words get transmitted to you in a broadsheet or a ballad or, or strolling, you know, folks whose job it is to go around the kingdom and, and, spread the words of, of of the leader there's all kinds of fun things we can play with there of like how people are aware of the qualities that their leader may or may not have and can someone else can someone else get in there and make you think things about the leader that aren't necessarily true and and that's where it gets really fun but then of course the flip side is that as if you're in the if you can see if you see your leader close up if you're in the town square watching them address give the address you can see them you can hear them do the little burp that they're, and they're kind of you, know, you, you can see the deep. flop sweat you can see, yeah you can see the flop sweat yes you, can, yes, yeah, you have you that kind of and you have that sense of okay this that kind of this is immortal yes this is immortal kind of that that's his wife and his son that presumably means he had sex and you know he was <laughs> that presumably you know maybe he Maybe he needs to piss. Maybe he pisses sometimes. Maybe he shits sometimes. Well, it takes if, away you know, a bit of the mystique, doesn't it? Yes. yes. <laughs> that kind of you know if that. That kind of imperial figure far away, you've never you've never seen them. Their heads on the who you really know about them is their heads on the coin, or yeah, you get these kind of announcements, proclamations. They are a god. They are, you know, that that humanizing, you don't see the humanness of them. So you see them in a very different way. It's kind of it can play both ways. And I think a very I mean, I think about this a lot, how people like to believe in someone, like to have someone that they look up to. And it takes a different shape in our modern world, but I feel like a lot of the ways we view celebrity is the way that people in prior eras viewed political leaders, kings, aristocrats, things like that. We just sort of, we graft it onto different types of humans these days, that, that sort of adulation and the want to believe that they are good and that they are here for you and that they reflect you in some way, whether or not that is at all true, even slightly. <laughs> Why do you think celebrities get elected into office regardless of whether they have ability to do the job well, or not? Well, <laughs> I'm just saying, if Taylor Swift runs for something, 
We've been talking for over an hour and it's been fantastic, but I want to make sure we didn't. Oh, you've got one fantastic question about, about. Um, does it matter if the general would actually give a speech? And does it matter that actually, so we always have this, you know, yeah, this sort of brilliant, you know, the general stands up and he makes this wonderful speech and everyone's saying like, you what, I'm sorry, kind of, what did he, what's he saying? What's he saying? I mean, it's like <laughs> that, that one piece in my Monty Python and, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Blessed are the cheese makers. Oh, I think you can take that to mean all makers of dairy products. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, do, do yes. we care about realism at that moment or are we going for something else entirely? Miles Cameron does this absolutely wonderful bit in the last of his Red Knight series, Traitor Sun series, where the only, I mean, he's just, he's obviously just really mucking about by this point, but the only way that the our Imperator can address his vast massed army before they go into battle is that you get someone to give him some magic, which means he's got a really, really amazingly loud voice. And it's done in so his speech is done in caps locks and it begins, oh, is this working? Yes. <laughs> and he just yeah, last is like, fuck it, I'm gonna give him a magic microphone. And it really yeah, his, his speech does become like, oh, is this working? Oh yes, it is working. And I I, tap, I think tap, that's tap, just tap. yeah, yes. Yeah, yes. is this thing on? It's brilliant because it's just, you know, he's obviously he's just like, fuck it, just kind of <laughs> But yeah, because he's because he's in that reenactor, so he's well aware that yeah, everyone behind Frank Rose Free is like, sorry, let's just <laughs> if you're not in a very specially designed space, if you're out in a field in the muck, like no, they can't hear you. But they're also like we get accounts in history of how the message would get passed back, essentially, mm-hmm. like you know, people would mutter it backwards to each other, and I always wonder, you know, like like in the Monty Python sketch, like what does filter back. <laughs> How accurate is it? And I, oh gosh, I can't remember the example now. There actually is some, gosh, some example where we have two versions of a speech that two people heard from like two completely different places in the crowd. One who was like quite close and one who was far away. And they're not completely different. <laughs> it's not It's not like a kid's game of telephone. And I think some of that might have to do with like, I think our, our audio memories aren't as well trained these days to, to you know, retain things. But they're definitely different. They're definitely not the same speech. And now I can't remember what that example is. And that's going to bug me for the rest of the day. But like, there's things like that. Like, you might get the gist, but is the rhetoric going to slip between row A and row double Q? You know, like, you lose that that little bit of the, the mystique and the glamour that comes with the well-arranged sentences when you're hearing it filtered through that many layers. And even the question of like, is it even pragmatic to do a speech or because of the way that you're deploying, you're not ever lining everyone up in rank and having them stand there, you know, and a quarter mile long formation, however many far back, you know, maybe that's not how you're deploying for this military maneuver at all. So there's no speech because we couldn't get everyone together. We've got half the army over there. We've got the flanking wing has already moved into the woods. The <laughs> artillery has gone. They're in place. So it's like, forget it. We're just no speech, but... <laughs> But in literature, we want the speech. So so we're going to find some way of doing it. Yeah. We have to have the speech. speech. <laughs> because the whole tradition of the speech, it still comes from the Greek historians who are making up what people, yes. what they think people should have said. <laughs> that. So, 400 yes, years right. later, they're like, <laughs> he absolutely right. said this. And they are. I was not there. Yes. They are doing exactly what I do, which is just enjoying yourself. Like, just, yeah, they are doing, yes. it is no different to what we're doing, where they're making up speeches that the person should have said. And if I would have said it, if I'd been there, this is what I would have said. 
you know, if there had been, if there had been, would have been like this. Yeah, would have been like. Well, you see things like uh, the the Romans, who I adore, would give their speeches in the public forum, and then they'd write them down afterwards, and it's like. Is that really what you said? Or is that what you wished you said? Yes, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, these speeches, again, these great military yeah. speeches. Yes, it's kind of, yes, they actually, yes, the author actually spent sort of, yes, months crafting it and recrafting it and rewriting it after after the fact. And yeah. But it's like when you leave a conversation, yeah. you're like, damn it, yeah. you know what I should have said? I wish yes. I'd said that. Yes. <laughs> it's like Julius Caesar can make everyone think yeah, he said like, that. So- <laughs> Yeah, because where the speeches actually come from in the written records. And like, I know in a lot of military ones, like we get the, like the military speech, like from some guy's memoir that he wrote later. Like, this is the thing I said on the eve of this battle. No, it's not. You didn't really. Maybe it was the gist. You said the gist of that. Tell everyone. You didn't. This is what I'd say. <laughs> but that speaks so much to the desire to be seen as a good, effective, persuasive speaker. Yes. Um, which once again says something about a culture's, you know, what do we value? What do we see as good leadership? We want to be seen that way, even if perhaps the reality was different. Or even if the reality. I, I'm thinking about a thing I learned in a naval history class that the teacher made a big deal about that we will sometimes filter the reality to better rhetoric. Like the, the famous phrase, um, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead was not what was said in that particular battle, but it sounds so much better than the actual thing. <laughs> because the actual thing, and this was all, she's like, this is going to be on the test. And it was on the test. The actual thing he said was, damn the torpedoes, four bells, Captain, straight ahead. No, which the cadence is all is wrong. nowhere near it as inspiring. No. It loses something just in translation. Just a couple extra syllables, yeah. just they throw it off balance. It's, yeah. But also you have to yeah. know that four bells, Captain, means yeah. full speed ahead. And right. thus it gets completely you know, muddled. But that's what he actually said. But that's nowhere near as cool. No. <laughs> so yes, edit it to the better rhetoric. <laughs> there probably are a lot of those that are actually like apocryphal rather than, than actual. But 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 they, they make they make for such good like little little gems from, you know. If the my legend is better is, than the truth, yes. print the legend. My my favorite, and I think this, I think this one's actually true, um, because it, there's there's no evidence for it being apocryphal. But that um, it's like a British general, or I don't even think he was a general. I think that he was major general um, during the American Revolution. They're trying to retake Fort Ticonderoga, uh, which is up. It's like up really high. Um, and so the artillery is bitching that they can't get the guns up there. They're like, we can't get the guns up there. And someone must have said something about like, only a goat could go up there. And he answers, where a goat can go, a man can go. And where a man can go, yes. he can drag a gun. And like, I just, that is like, not in fact necessarily true. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, neither one no, of those leads. it's not. No. But I just love that like moment of like this. The only moment this lovely little gem of rhetoric came about was someone was probably bitching and used those exact words like only a goat could go up there, <laughs> Philip. And he's like, Alexander actually supposedly similar sort of um yeah similar things supposedly sort of there's um people on what's called the Sogdian Rock, which is supposed to be that they've got this hideout on top of a very very straight up bit of rock, and no one can you cannot get an army up there. And he's just sitting. So we have this sort of um. We're right in the wild in Sogdia, and we have this sort of local tree, local big man who's sitting up on top of his rock. He's got loads of food and water supplies up there, and he's just basically just kind of going, no, no, Alexander. And then he makes supposedly he says this thing about only so show me some. You'll take this. You'll take this rock when you have soldiers with wings. 
And Alexander's like, you know, right, that, you know, he has to take the rock now because, and it's again, it's a sort of example of where that kind of was supposed to be a speech that means you feel totally defeated. In fact, it's the opposite because he's, yeah, he's so, he's so inspired by that that he gets climbers to climb up the sheer outside of the cliff, back of the cliff, and come down from over the top. And there's only, there are only about, hardly there's a handful of them but then the guy is the guy whose rock it is is so absolutely overcome with shock that he's sort of given this challenge you, know, you can't you'll never take this rock you'll have to have soldiers with wings to take this rock and alexander's actually somehow got soldiers with wings that he just gives up completely so even yeah. though there's actually only a handful of unarmed men up there he gives up at that point because it, again it's almost like kind of he's his his rhetoric has been defeated and he's sort of he's, he's laid down this challenge in words, which have then been come true, and that's it. He's just he's completely defeated. So did this guy get the guns up here up there? I don't know nothing. He did he did he did they, they <laughs> retook for Ticonderoga. So yes, he did he did succeed. So apparently, it's true that where a goat can go, a man can go, and where a man can go, he can drag a gun. Which again, logically, I don't think is accurate, but I have, I have only one data point, and it says yes. So. Never underestimate the power of spite. Somebody yes. says only a goat can do it. it. Yes. Says, Fuck you, we can do it. <laughs> We're gonna do it. Yes, that's a, yeah, that's a wonderful example <laughs> of that kind of speech making. You're kind of yeah, you know, you you can't do it. Bet you you can't do it. Is yes, the yeah. best way to get someone to do it. I just flashed in the episode of The Simpson where the con man gets him to build the monorail and he just goes, well, it, maybe it's not for you. Maybe it's more of a Shelbyville idea. And then they're all like, wait, no, no, no. We'll, we're we're going to do it. We're going to do it. <laughs> Actually, the only kind of rhetoric we haven't talked about is the really folksy, deliberately not being, not being eloquent. The kind of, yes, the kind of, I'm only a poor, uneducated person. You know, I don't know. And I only know, you know, I don't know much, but I'm really, and that's, boring and not particularly well framed, written and it's gone but and that does but that does kind of go back on the kind of you know i'm not i'm not educated i'm not intelligent i'm not kind of i'm not going to give you some fancy words i'm just going to tell you like it is and that is often the most dangerous that's often the most dangerous kind of he seems yes. so real like you yes. can have a beer with yes him. yes <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yes <Oof. laughs> Ant- Antony does it later in, in his speech. I am no orator, as Brutus is, but a plain, blunt man that speaks right on. I think that's the line. Yeah. Like, sure, <laughs> sure Antony. Sure. Sure. You know, it's true, though. It's this interesting, I think, element of what we were talking about earlier, like the audience awareness. Like, you know what your audience wants, and so you sculpt the way that you say it, not just what you say, but the way you say it, just to fit what's going to be palatable to the audience, because... Yes, you can you can appeal to a particular audience with sort of silver tongued academic like, oh, this person is so much better than me. But it hits a point that actually the other end of like, oh, they don't really understand me. They couldn't possibly know becomes the danger in that. So you can swing back around to, oh, this person understands the common ordinary person just like me. I will not do a Google and find out if they've ever actually lived as an ordinary, normal person just like me. It will continue with the facade that they have put up of ordinary person just like me. Because that's so much of it is like building a character as well as building, I mean, the rhetoric has to fit the character and to some degree. Where's well, that, that notion of elite speech? The rhetoric again comes back to rhetoric as rhetoric in the sense of rhetoric as formally structured 
eloquent, attractively conveyed speech rhetoric, as in you know making a good speech. That's an so so that's associated with elites, associated with being education. So to, in fact, to not to have a deliberate anti-rhetoric is somehow seen as being more authentic, because as that fitting into that really dangerous sense that of you know we we've, we've had enough of experts, sort of you know yeah the com- common sense that <laughs> as soon as you speak in a way that is educated, it's speech which is seen as somehow against common sense, as I'm about the elite, that notion that kind of Somehow, us lot here on this podcast are actually the secret master of the world because we've had education. Because <laughs> we're all obviously talking about education, I'm talking about art theory, <laughs> rhetoric. Was the action? It's a kind of because you use are using non-educated language, and present that somehow that is somehow in a lot of people's minds somehow trumps any kind of actual reality of, of what elite and non-elite means. I mean, interesting at once. Terrifying but interesting seems yes. like a good yes. way to end yeah. a podcast on rhetoric. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, yes. Yes. I think that te- I think terrifying but interesting sounds like an, an apt description of so much that we've experienced. Including in, the in... best villains in any book. Yes, that's true. So um, it has been delightful having you on, Anna. And our tradition when we have a guest come on is to ask them to leave us a little bit of trivia um, to add to the world that we are building together. Um, so we are curious what you've brought for us. Oh, goodness. Well, I think, I guess we're going to have to go with Cass's riffing off me talking about magical speech earlier, where if, yes, if, if it's sort of someone, some occasionally the ability that just using the beautiful words makes the thing, the more beautiful, the, the more beautiful your words are, the kind of, it makes it, actually makes it real. real. So, yeah, the kind of, yes, because that would, you just have sort of, obviously everyone can't do it, but maybe just have some little, I don't know, put that in somewhere that sort of, I yes. Contest of beautiful truth. Oh, sorry, it's, yes. Right. Rhetorical, <laughs> magical amplification yes. of <laughs> things. I love it. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Anna. It's been a delight, as always. Oh, it's lovely to have. Thank you. It's a really. I love this. Love talking to you guys. It's always brilliant. So, so interesting. So amazing. I'm, I'm disappointed. Cast did not recite some Christmas Day speech. <laughs> I'm tra- I don't want to be a bully. I, I actually have it recorded. I can send it to Marshall. <laughs> He can, app- it can be bonus he can append content. it to bonus content at the end because I did it for my Patreon a few years ago. So, What's he that wishes so? My cousin Westmoreland? No, my fair cousin. If we are marked to die, we are enough to do our country loss. And if to live, the fewer men, the greater share of honor. I'm not doing the whole thing. I'm not going to be that obnoxious. <laughs> but I could. Never bet Cass a couple of times that she won't deliver a speech is the... The best part of that's the lesson. The today. best part of that story was I didn't actually have the speech memorized at that point in time. I learned it, committed it to memory during the intermission <laughs> while I was performing in Henry VIII that evening. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got my Henry VIII lines in my head, and I'm memorizing the Saint Crispin's Day speech. <laughs> I'm not a normal nice. person. <laughs> Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. 
We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts. <laughs> <laughs>